0: I don't understand why I did, back in the day, travel on these days. And I certainly can't understand why anybody else is doing it uh, these days as well. But it's good to have you here this morning. We had a good Christmas uh, time with our youngest son and his family. And um, hopefully you all all did as well. I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. We want to review just a little bit this morning to prepare us for what's coming in our lesson today. Uh, In chapter 6, we have the seal judgments. And the first six of them are mentioned in chapter 6. And the sixth one is brought to our attention in verse 12 of chapter 6. Now, I want you to look at it with me. Then we're going to have a word of prayer and go from there. Notice verse 12. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black like sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree uh, cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky split apart like a scroll. And, and, and when it was rolled up, and every mountain and every island were moved out of their places. That's quite an eruption there. And the islands and the mountains are moved off of their foundations. Then notice verse 15. And the kings of the earth and the great men, the commanders of the rich and, and the strong, and every slave and free man, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Notice, both the Father and the Son are mentioned. And then they make this statement, for the great day of their wrath, that's the Father and the Son, the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Well, class, when we look at that and we see that it's the great day of their wrath, we shared with you last time, we're talking about what is called in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as the day of the Lord. And we looked at First Thessalonians 4, we looked at First Thessalonians 5, which talks about the day of the Lord. And the emphasis uh, there is the day of the Lord that is the tribulation that comes directly after uh, the rapture. Then we went to Joel chapter 2, if you recall, and we saw that Joel talks about the day of the Lord, and he begins by describing the tribulation period. Then he also says that the Lord is going to restore the kingdom. He's going to bring about the millennial kingdom. There's going to be peace and so on. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, First, Second Thessalonians chapter two, and then Joel two tell us the great day of the their wrath, the day of the Lord includes the tribulation. It includes uh, the millennial kingdom, and then we went to Second Peter, and we found in Second Peter uh, in ch- chapter three that it talks about the day of the Lord and it's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. What we're saying then as we look at the scripture class, God is saying to us, the great day of his Lord is from the time of the rapture all the way to the new heavens and the new earth. Just by looking at those few passages. We could go to many others, but that's the major ones. Now, it's very important we understand. Somehow or another, they perceive that things are really going to get bad now. We've had these judgments, this first six judgment, but now his great wrath is coming. And uh, the thing that you need to understand is that when we come to the seventh seal, we're talking about introducing all the rest of the judgments all the way until the second coming of Christ. Now, if you happen to have your outline with you, there is something I want to point out. I pointed it out a couple of times. But on the second page of your outline, if you look at it, it talks about the series of judgments, and it talks about the five parenthetical sections. And what I want you to see is the seal judgments are uh, mentioned in the outline in chapter 6, 1 through uh, 6. Uh, And then when we get to verse 12, we have the sixth one. So all of those uh, seal judgments are in there. But notice at the end of the sixth uh, seal judgment, all of a sudden it turns a corner and we're introduced to our first parenthetical section. And notice in Revelation chapter 7, 1 to 17, God's provision of salvation. Now, what I want you to see as we look at it uh, uh, this morning is that in the tribulation period, there are going to be people that get saved. A lot of people have uh, some issues with that because of a passage in 2 Thessalonians 2. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But note, please, in chapter 6, verse 12, you have the sixth seal. Then if you go over into... Uh, Chapter 8, verse 1, you have the seventh seal. So in between the sixth seal and the seventh seal is our first parenthetical passage where God is going to share something with us that gives hope. In the midst of all of the judgment, God is stopping and saying, now I want you to know the gospel is going to be offered and people are going to get saved. That's the parenthetical section. In chapter 7. Now I want to look at that this morning. And then we'll go back to the judgments. uh, The final one in particular. Of the seal judgments. Now let's look at chapter 7. Here's a parenthetical section. And it's God telling us. That salvation is still available. Even in the midst of the tribulation judgments. And I want you to notice please class. That in verses 1 to 8 you have uh, God uh, setting aside special men for ministry in chapter 7, verses 1 to 8. And then in chapter 7, verse 9 and following, it's going to talk about people that get saved. But how do they get saved? The primary witness, and listen to me class, the primary witness of the gospel as far as the scripture in Revelation is concerned is the ministry of Jewish evangelist? okay? Now look at it, verse 1. After this, that is, after the sixth seal and the people recognizing that the great day of their wrath has come, after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea or on the trees. Now, some people, class, have tried to uh, ridicule the Scripture and the scientific inaccuracies in the Bible, and this passage is one of them because it mentions the four corners of the earth as if the earth is flat with four corners. What they fail to recognize is that the fact that it's talking about like the compass, and it's talking about north, south, east, west. They're the four corners that is being addre- uh, that are being addressed here. And as a matter of fact, if you're taking notes, I can give you any number of passages where it talks about the earth being circular. For example, I'll just name a couple of them. I won't turn to them. But in Job chapter 22 and verse 14, it talks about the curvature of the earth. Uh, in Proverbs 8 and verse 27, it does it again. And in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22, it mentions the curvature of the earth. Now, <clears throat> I preached from Isaiah chapter 40 when I was in, uh, in uh, Argentina and Uruguay sometime back years ago when I was working with a mission. And uh, one of the students afterwards, after I talked and read the Scripture, it said the circular earth. They said, that earth is not a circle. All you got to do is look out there. It's flat. He was looking at it from appearance. And, you know, he couldn't see any kind of curvature at all. And I've been warned that that might be the case that some would react, but uh, they fail to recognize as they study the scripture, there are many passages that talk about the earth as a circle. And of course, scientifically, now we know that that is true. But that's the four corners, the four coordinates quadrants, quadrants on the compass, north, south, east, and west. And it says that, there's no wind to blow on the earth or on the sea and on the trees. And then in verse 2, he says to us, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun and having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels on whom it was granted to harm the earth and to sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God, on their foreheads. So there is a sealing process that occurs. Now, if you uh, will go with me uh, to um, uh, chapter 14 and verse 1, I want to point something out to you, and then we'll come back to our text. In chapter 14 and verse 1, it talks about this seal that is on the forehead. And the text tells us, and I looked and behold, the lamb was standing on the Mount Zion and with him the one hundred and forty four thousand. That's who we're going to be talking about in chapter seven, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. So the seal is the seal of own ownership, and it's done by branding them with the name of the father and the son on the forehead. Now, when we talk about the seals in Scripture, there's three different ways, and I think I've mentioned this before, class. Uh, there are three different ways that the term seal is used. It can be the stamp of a paid-in-full bill, indicating that the person has fulfilled their obligation and paid their bill. It, it, it is a seal also for security, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, Ephesians 4, 6 says. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed, how long? Until the day of redemption. It's a, it is a seal of security as well. But it's also a branding, and that's where this name comes in. Sealed means to brand, like we would brand cattle uh, to show ownership. Well, the God shows ownership with the seal of this 144,000 that we're going to talk about here by putting the name of the Father and the Son uh, on their forehead. Now notice in verse 4, And I heard the number of those that were sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now there's a number of different observations that I want to make here Uh, that I think are important for us to understand. Number one, if you go through the Scriptures, and I I have gone through the struggle of not understanding what was going on, and finally now I've been introduced to the solution to it uh, about halfway through my ministry, Uh, but there are 29 different listings of the 12 tribes in the Scripture, 29 of them. And if you look at them, You'll note that 19 out of the 29 have variations in them. It doesn't list the tribes as you think they ought to be. There are changes. And the question has been raised is why are there changes? There are changes. And we'll look at it and share with you as we go along. So there are 29 listings. This is the one of the 29. And it is also one of the 19 where the listings are changed. Notice what it says. And it says, from, every tri- from the tribe of Judah, 12. Uh, from the tribe of Reuben, 12. Gad, 12,000. All over. It works all the way through. Each tribe has 12,000 uh, members of this 144,000 that are sealed as Jewish evangelists during the tribulation period. Now, once you look up here, when you start thinking about that a few minutes you realize there's some implications there. A person cannot say, I'm going it Well, they can say, but it's not biblically acceptable. It is not biblically acceptable to say, I am going to go into ministry. I'm going to become a preacher. Or I'm going to go to the mission field. Or I'm going to do whatever. The call of God in the life of a full-time minister... Is the sovereign choice of God. Now, how do I, why do I even bring that up now? Because each tribe has 12,000. You're not going to get 12,000 in each tribe through human choice. Am I making sense? It would be different. So, what we have here is God's sovereign choice so that each tribe has 12,000 ministers. That's the first thing I want you to see. Then note uh, that uh, it says that they are all from the tribes of Israel. Then note, after you get through that, go down to verse 7. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Hisokar, 12,000. Now, notice, when you see Levi, that's not really one of the 12 in the list. The trail, the uh, Levites were people that were scattered. They didn't get a land inheritance. They were priests, and they were associated with all the different tribes throughout the land. But they're mentioned here as one of the 12. And as you go through the list, what you find is, is that it replaces the tribe of Dan in this particular list. Now, the question is, why is Dan not listed and Levi put in there? And most conclude is because, if I can put it this way, Daniel was being very naughty. <laughs> they were not walking with God like they were supposed to. And so Levi's put in place. We see two different variations here in this list. Notice for example. From the tribe of Zebulun 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph 12,000. That's not one of the tribes. He was the father of tribes. But he wasn't one of the tribes. But And he replaces Ephraim. Again. A tribe that is not walking with the Lord. Like they're supposed to. So a substitute is put in there. And they're not given recognition. Everybody with me. So we have 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes that are called as ministers of the gospel. And uh, there are variations in the tribal list. And it's probably because they're not walking with the Lord like they were supposed to. Now, we come to verse 9. Here we have, in first eight verses, we have these evangelists, 144,000 of them, from the nation of Israel going throughout the the land during the tribulation period. But in verse 9, And after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no man could number, from every nation, all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne uh, uh, of the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches are in their hands. So we have this great multitude of people class that are getting saved from every nation, every people, every tribe. They're coming to know the Lord as we work our way through the text. And it's a result, it appears, as you look at it, that they are the result of the evangelistic efforts of these Jewish uh, e- evangelists. Now, last time, we have, we've mentioned... They were all standing before the throne, uh, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. We dealt with that last time. And I want to mention it again now, that in chapter 6, verse 11, chapter 7, verse 9, chapter 7, verse 13, and chapter 7, verse 14, these people have white robes on. Now, these tribulation saints, I've already pointed out, You have to go all the way to Revelation 20 and verse 4 to find the resurrection of tribulation saints. So here they are. They're not resurrected. They've been killed. We take it from uh, chapter 7, putting it together with chapter 6, and the martyrdom and so on. They have been killed in the tribulation, and now they're standing before the the Lord, and they have white robes on. The question is, what, they, what do they hang the robes on? And the conclusion that we drew for you was that they have some kind of temporary body. And I mentioned my son, for example, Timothy, who only lived a day. Well, he's in heaven with the Lord, and he has some kind of temporary body there. Moses has some kind of temporary body, and so on. Uh, so there there is what we call that temporary body between our earthly body and our resurrected body. Everybody with me? Now, I want you to turn with me to a passage of Scripture that helps us deal with that. I want you to go with me to Luke chapter 16. Hold your place in Revelation now, and go with me to Luke chapter 16 and verse 24. It's a familiar uh, parable. Luke 24, uh, or Luke 16... Verse 24. And it talks about the rich man and Lazarus. And they have a great gulf between them. And the rich man is suffering after a life of luxury in this world. And that Lazarus, the poor man, is now uh, being taken care of by the Lord. Now notice verse 23 of Luke 16. And in Hades, that's the place where unsaved people go before they're cast into the lake of fire. It's in the abyss is a better way to look at it. And he lifted up his eyes, that is, uh, the rich man did from verse 22. And he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he, that is, the rich man, cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip... uh, the tip of his finger in the water. Now look at that. They have a body. And notice what it says. Dip th- his finger in the water to cool my tongue. Both of them have some kind of body. One has a finger. The other one is mentions the tongue. So they have temporary bodies uh, during this period while they're in uh, Hades. Everybody with me? Temporary body is seen throughout the Bible. Once you get the concept, you start looking and you start hearing these little hints of this special temporary body. Now notice, it says uh, in verse 10, And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and... Uh, uh, the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, Blessed, glory, uh, wisdom, thanksgiving, power, honor, power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders turns to John, and he says, One of the elders answered and said to me, the, uh, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they, and where do they come from? Okay, here we're going to get the identity of these folks. And I said to him, Lord, you know, I don't know, but you know, you're going to tell me. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have w- washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So these are people who have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the robes are washed into blood. And for this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. Now, class, I'm going to say it again. I don't understand that concept. How do they worship 24 hours a day? There must be something I'm missing. Uh, am I making sense to you? Now, do they have shifts? Like the priest, where you had a high priest for a certain period of time, and then they went off duty. I I don't know, but it it says that these people are worshiping the Lord night and day. Then I said, uh, uh, verse uh, 15, And for this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. They'll have a place to dwell. And they shall hunger no more. They've got plenty of food. Do they have a body? Can they digest food? I don't know how to answer that question, class. But they have a body. Now, I do know this. When the Lord Jesus appeared with his resurrected body, he wanted them to realize he was in his physical body, so he ate food. That sounds like a good thing to me. Turkey, dressing, steak. You know, it sounds good. All right. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd. He's going to be their guide. The shepherd is the one who protects. The shepherd is the one who provides. And the shepherd is the one who guides. And in this case, he's emphasizing guiding. And they shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to springs of water, of life. And God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, that is the first parenthetical section. In all the judgments, we all of a sudden stop. And the people of the world recognize. God's day of wrath has come, the day of the Lord. Rocks fall on us. We don't want to face this. And then God says, wait a minute, let me tell you something. There's going to to be people getting saved in the tribulation because I'm going to tell my Jewish evangelists to go out through all the world and a great multitude of people are going to be saved. They may be killed for their faith, and that's why they're here worshiping now, but they are saved people in the tribulation. Amen? Now, I want to stop right there, and I emphasize that because down through the years, especially early in my ministry, I kept hearing something that I didn't understand. I want you to turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, hold your place uh, in Revelation but go with me to 2 Thessalonians, uh, chapter 2. We want to look at that uh, for just a second. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. If I can find it, that would be helpful. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. And I want you to look with me uh, and at uh, verse uh, 1 and following. Well, I'm going to skip over some of the verses. Uh, look at verse uh, verse 9. That is, though the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness uh, for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding Influence so that they might believe uh, what is false, in order that they may be judged who do not believe the truth. Now, class, some have interpreted that to mean this deluding influence that these people are made incapable of believing uh, in the tribulation period. Now, here's what I want to say to you. Everybody that is left on this earth when the tribulation starts and the raptors occurred, everybody's left is unsaved. And when you go to chapter 7, a bunch of people are getting saved. So whatever 2 Thessalonians is saying, it is not saying that if you were unsaved before the rapture and you go into the tribulation, you're not going to be able to believe because God's not going to let you. That is not what this text is saying, okay? Now, the other side of that, I want to I point it out to you, is that uh, the idea that I think comes out of it all is that the vast majority of people are not going to be saved. He's going to send that influence on the people of this world. So there's only a minority that gets saved. But it's a great multitude in uh, chapter 7. But they are a minority in the size of the world in which we live. Right now, it's 7.3 billion people. You can have a lot of people get saved in a great multitude uh, and it's still not even be close to the 7.3 billion people. Everybody with me? Does that make sense to you? Now, notice then, we at the end of this parenthetical section at verse 17... Then notice we go into chapter 8, verse 1. Watch. And when he broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. The seventh seal. Now comes after chapter 7. Sixth seal, chapter 6. Seventh seal, chapter 8. In between the parenthetical section. Now, a couple of observations I would make to you. When we go back and we look at the seven-sealed book that the Son takes out of the hand of the Father, it's a seven-sealed book. It is not a book that has seven trumpets as far as that overall uh, title is concerned. It doesn't mention the trumpets. It doesn't mention the bowl or the violin. It's seven-sealed book. Okay? Now, that's a hint to us that when you get to the seventh seal, it's not just another judgment. When you go back to the six seals, each of them had a special kind of judgment that came when that seal was broken. But when you come to the seventh seal, the last one, it doesn't have its own individual judgment. The seventh seal is the trumpets and the bowl. Everybody with me? And so there is this silence in heaven because the men and women of this world recognize the great day of His wrath has come and the seventh seal has now been opened and all the rest of the judgments all the way to the second coming of Christ are now going to be poured out. They are the seventh seal. Everybody with me? Now, we go back to the text. And notice what it says in verse 2 of chapter 8. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and uh, much incense was given to him, that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne." And the smoke of the uh, incense uh, with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Now, we have there a picture uh, of a priest. The angel is acting as the priest because our great high priest right now is not functioning as a high priest. He's functioning as the judge. Okay? So the angel uh, is functioning as the priest in this case as they if, offer up incense and the prayers of the saints. Then there's a second thing that this this uh, uh, censer does. Notice in verse uh, 5, And the angel took the censer, and he filled it with fire from the altar, and he threw it on the earth, and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashing uh, uh, flashes of lightning, And an earthquake. So the censer is used in two different ways. One, to offer up prayers uh, from the saints to God. And then secondly, it is used to dump fire from the altar down on the earth and cause this great earthquake. Now, notice what it says in verse 6. And the seven angels who had the seven trumps prepared themselves uh, to sound. And the first sounded... And there was hail and fire mixed with blood. And they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up. And all the green grass was burned up. So the first trumpet judgment impacts uh, the environment. Up until now, it's been more about men. And a little bit later, be more about men. But there's going to be four of the trumpet judgments here that are going to impact uh, the environment. And the first one is a third part of the vegetation is burned. Now, class, we have to do a little bit, a bit of uh, recreation of what's going on. Our pastor does a great job of this. Sometimes in the Old Testament when he deals with a passage, he will just go back and just paint a picture that helps you to understand what's going on. Well, that's what we have to do in this case as well. A third of the vegetation is destroyed. Okay, what does that mean? What does that look like? How do we get our hands around it? Well, first of all, if you're going to burn up a third of the vegetation in the world, I would say we're going to have an air pollution problem. Amen? Uh, If you're going to have a third of the vegetation destroyed, you're going to have a lack of oxygen compared to what you had before. Carbon monoxide is going to be high. Uh, Pure oxygen is not going to be very high because the vegetation is involved in bringing that all about. Um, There's going to be erosion. If you burn up the vegetation... You're going to be back in a situation. Remember, this is global now. You're going to be in a situation that brings about something like the dust bowl that we experienced here in our country. Loss of crops. No food for consumption. And when you talk about hail, may I make an observation about that? I was over in Cahaba Heights when we lived over there when the college was on 280. And uh, I was out painting, and a storm came up, and uh, hail started falling. I said, no big deal. That's not going to last long. I want you to know, hail hurts. <laughs> and, and when it gets to the big, big pieces like the Scripture describes here, uh, hail can be very harmful. As a matter of fact, if you go back to Exodus chapter 9... You might want to write it down. In Exodus chapter 9 and verse 19 and verse 25, the hail comes down. You remember one of the plagues in Egypt? And animals and men, the text say, are killed. I'm suggesting that same kind of thing is going to happen here. Hail uh, and fire mixed with blood. Now, class, I'm not sure what the mixed with blood means. Um, I've searched the other wise men, the wise men of Scripture, and to see if I can find an answer that helps me, but it really doesn't. I, I don't know what that is, mixed with blood. By the way, one other thing I ought to mention. If you're going to talk about destroying the vegetation, wood products are going to be limited. You're going to have a forest fire, and then you're going to burn wood, and you're going to have a shortage of uh, materials to construct housing, for example. When we Betty and I were building our house here in Birmingham, we were still up in Maryland, and our youngest son was helping take care of it and making sure what needed to be done was done. When we started trying to find timber, two-by-fours, for the stick frame for the house, it was hard to come by, and you paid heavily for it, because of the hurricanes down in New Orleans at that particular time. So, destruction of uh, building materials. All that's involved in this uh, first uh, trumpet judgment. Now notice verse 8 and 9, you have the second trumpet judgment. Look what it says. And the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the creatures that were in the sea and had life died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. So here we have a situation where uh, this great mountain, whatever it is, asteroid, whatever, uh, falling from heaven, falls and it evidently breaks up and goes into the major Water sources throughout the world. Remember, this is global. Now I went to the almanac and I looked up and, and just to see something about rivers. And this is trivia maybe to you, but I thought it was significant. When you talk about the rivers of the world that are going to be polluted, the the almanac tells me there are one hundred major rivers in the world, 100. I would have thought it have been more, but 100. Example, uh, the longest is the Nile. It's over 4,000 miles long. Uh, next to it is the Amazon. It is 4,000. Uh, and the Yancey, it's 3,900 and some. And then the Mississippi River is one of the, the major ones. It's 3,700 miles long. Now, when you talk about the rivers, and you can talk about the volume of water, the largest volume of water is the Amazon. It carries more water than the Nile, the Yancey, and the Mississippi put together. That's the Amazon River. And all of these are going to be polluted. The other thing that I discovered as I started studying this and saying, okay, what's going to be happening in the world when the pollution of the water occurs? Another observation that helps me to understand the devastation here is that uh, there is a water shortage all throughout the world. One half of the world's population faces water shortage right now. One half. My son lives in California in Brea, just outside of L.A. They can't water their grass anymore. He's planning on taking it up, putting rock down or something because the grass is gone. They don't have enough water to keep it alive. Here's something I would say to you that I think is important. By the year 2050, 35% of the population will be searching for water. And the prediction is we will have major wars over water rights. That's already coming. Now, if you take that and you put it with this devastation and uh, and the poisoning of the rivers uh, in this particular trumpet judgment, it's going to be a major concern for the people living in the tribulation. Does that help? It's going to be a major issue. Then notice, when you get to verse 10, notice what it says. And the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on the third of the rivers and the springs and the waters, and the name of the star is called Wormwood. Now the previous one Talks about the oceans and the seas and the ships and all of that. This one's talking about the rivers uh, in particular uh, and the springs of water. And notice there is, the name of the star is Wormwood. Did a little research on that. And what it says to us, class, is there is a shrub that grows in the desert. It is so bitter that some nations around the world have condemned using it in any way, shape, or form because it is so poisonous. Well, that wormwood is going to go into the waters. Now, verse 12. Here we come to the fourth trumpet. And the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, a third of the moon, third of the stars were smitten, so that a third of them might be darkened and the day might not shine, for a third of it and the night in the same way. Now, most people take that to be some kind of uh, eclipse, a partial eclipse. And uh, when you stop to think about all of that light taken, especially from the sun, then you've got a problem with uh, loss of heat probably going to get cold. Uh, and the weather patterns are going to change, sort of like what we're facing these days, if the climate people are, are right. By the way, I'm a Christian, but I'm inclined to kind of agree with them. <laughs> uh, but there's going to be violence in the weather patterns, and we, I think we're seeing that these days, all because of the the change and the light sources that are available to us. Now, it talks earlier about vegetation being destroyed and the rivers being poisoned. All of that's going to impact uh, what vegetation we have available. But when you start taking the power of the sun and its ability to help things grow, when you take that away, then you've got an even more devastating problem. If you go to my backyard class, I have planted three Bradford pears back there. And the back part of the, I have 1.9 acres. So the back part of the property, when the vegetation comes out in the summertime, the front part of the Bradford pears grow. But if you go around to the back of them, where they don't get any sun, blank. The sun is very important to vegetation. I have knockout roses. You know what I'm talking about? Knockout roses. I have 11 big bushes of knockout roses in my backyard. And every year, right around Valentine's Day, we cut those suckers back to 12 to 18 inches. And by the end of the summer, they're so big, when a storm comes up, they they start having trouble because there's so many branches. Uh, but if you go down just 10 or 15 feet down into the corner of my fenced-in part of my yard to keep my dog in, I planted two knockout roses. The other ones are red. They are yellow. When spring comes, they start blossoming out, and I think, oh, this is going to be great. I'm finally going to have some yellow knockout roses. But when the vegetation comes up, the trees fill in, no more roses. Why? The sun can't get to them. So class, when we talk about this destruction of, of the third of the power source that comes from the sun, we've got to recognize that we've got a major issue there. Now, I'm going to close with this, verse 13. And I looked and I heard an eagle flying in midheaven say with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet and the three angels who were about the sound. Now, woe is a word that indicates in the Scripture a major, severe judgment is coming. Now, these judgments are bad enough, but the last three are not only a trumpet judgment, they are a woe. Each of the three last ones are a woe. Now, we'll talk about that uh, uh, next time. Our time's gone. I hope that was helpful to you to understand how we need to recreate what this is saying and the consequences that come over the world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. And I pray that as we continue our study in Revelation, you'll help us to understand all that's here and uh, thank you Lord that we don't have to participate in it. Help us to talk to people about the Lord before it's too late for them. And we'll thank You for it. In Jesus' name, Amen.